If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 622. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com or you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. Click on the support tab while you're there. You can throw a few, few pennies my way. You can also go to learntrue, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, where I teach with Tom and a lot of other great instructors. It's also a great educational website. You can support the show by clicking on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. That's how we keep the show interesting for you, because you're involved in the process. And this is a listener-generated episode. I probably received this article at least a dozen times in an email. Hey, can you talk about this? It's an article at The American Thinker, and it's pretty embarrassing for several reasons. But it's by a guy named Mike Conrad. Now, that's not his real name. I'm not certain why he wrote under a pseudonym here. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, because essentially what he's doing in this particular article is spewing all the same establishment stuff that everyone thinks anyways, the, the majority of Americans think. But he writes under a pseudonym, and the title of the article is Why the South Lives On. Now, the only thing you could find that maybe the establishment would object to this is that somehow he believes that uh, the death toll in the South was catastrophic. In fact, there was nearly a genocide. By saying that, that puts him at odds with the establishment, who would say that this, the South deserved it. Now, Conrad doesn't seem to think the South deserved that, but he's not in favor of the South. He says the same common claptrap establishment nonsense about the war. And I mean, this is, there's nothing controversial about this piece whatsoever. Again, why he's writing under a pseudonym, I have no idea. But I'm going to read this piece because there are some things in here that are pretty funny and that need to be refuted. And not just that, uh, some of the other things he says, I mean, you can explain some of this stuff. Now, he says, It was in this month, 157 years ago, that the Civil War ended. I have seen aficionados on both sides lament what happened, while they might argue over who was right and what was lost. I am not an aficionado of the lost cause theory. <laughs> so he begins by saying, I'm not an aficionado. Now, what, are, what, <clears throat> what is an aficionado? of the lost cause theory. What does that even mean to begin with? While some defenders of Dixie claim the issue with states' rights, the chief underlying cause of the war was slavery. Now, all right. So what is controversial about that statement that he needs to write under a pseudonym? I mean, is he afraid that people are going to attack him that believe the opposite? Uh, and therefore, he can't tolerate that? Um, now, uh, he uses this, the, the typical tripe that says the war was about slavery. In his cornerstone speech on March 21st, 1861, Confederate Vice President Alexander H. Stevens stated bluntly that slavery was the very foundation of Southern society. 
Four states, Mississippi, Texas, Georgia, and South Carolina, even listed slavery among the reasons for leaving. Four states went further. Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, and South Carolina all issued additional documents, usually referred to as the Declaration of Causes. Two major themes emerge in these documents, slavery and states' rights. All four states strongly defend slavery while making varying claims related to state rights. This is from battlefields.org. That's his, that's his citation. Now, first of all, the fact that Alexander H. Stevens talked about slavery in the Quarterstone speech, I mean, look, I've talked about this on this podcast before. He later said that the speech was extemporaneous and that the person writing it down got some things wrong that he said. Um, and so Stevens... We don't even know if this is an accurate representation of what Stephen said. And we have to understand this. A lot of speeches were written down by reporters and were not really fact-checked by anybody. Now, sometimes they were. Sometimes the, the people making the speech could go over and review what the person wrote down and say, well, I didn't say that, or I said this, or uh, <clears throat> maybe a copy could be provided. But for the most part, these speeches were extemporaneous and, again, relied upon the note-taker to say this is what was said or wasn't said. This is the case throughout the 18th and 19th century. Now, just because slavery was the cornerstone of the Confederacy, if you want to take that line of thinking, which, of course, many Southerners did, did say that slavery was an important part of Southern society, that the North was trying to uh, destroy the institution, this, these arguments were made throughout the South, throughout the Deep South in particular, um, but that doesn't mean that wasn't the cause of the war. The war was caused by Lincoln attempting to coerce these seceded states back into the Union. That was the cause of the war. So if you want to look at secession and war, these are two different things. Secession doesn't invite war. We can sit here and say, yeah, I mean, the Confederacy, these, these deep southern states were interested in the preservation of the institution of slavery. There's little doubt about that. There were even members of these states that were interested in the expansion of slavery. As he's going to get into in a minute, this is also true. But to say that the war was about slavery is to misinterpret the entire position. The war was about preventing secession, right? That's what the war was about. Lincoln didn't want these deep southern states out of the Union. you got to remember, there were still six, I'm sorry, there were still eight eight slave states in the Union in 1861 when South Carolina fired on Fort Sumter and when Lincoln landed the troops at Fort Pickens. There were still eight slave states in the Union, right? Eight. So if the war was about slavery, why weren't these states out of the Union? Of course, they explicitly rejected secession. Virginia did so. North Carolina did so. Uh, these states were not going to secede from the Union. They didn't think it was it was worth it, right? There was th this was this was not something they were willing to do, and so these eight states, well, some of them joined the Confederacy because they saw the war as a war of occupation and subjugation. And you could probably make a claim that all eight states would have joined the Confederacy had Lincoln not occupied Maryland. Uh, and that prevented Delaware from seceding. There was certainly a contingency in the Delaware uh, political leadership that wanted Delaware out of the Union. So you had uh, Maryland coerce to stay in, and then Delaware wasn't going to go. But the rest of them actually did have Confederate governments, even Kentucky and Missouri. So essentially 13 of the 15 states were out of the Union Okay, at, at one point or another. You can also, there's actually a little book written about um, 
secession in places like New Jersey. There was a, a certainly a, a, a faction of New Jersey that was interested in leaving the Union. Same thing in New York. Um, there were actually you know people that were pretty pro-secession in Pennsylvania. I mean, you found pro-secession people all over the United States. So was it really about slavery? Or was it more about independence? Now, we can, again, you can, you, can, you can separate the two issues, which is where it's not lost cause theory. There's no lost cause theory here. There's actually fact in what was happening on the ground. The usual reply is that, and it continues, the usual reply is that the South rejected the proposed Corn Amendment, which would have protected slavery in the South, hence the issue was states' rights. The problem with this argument is that the South did not want slavery to be protected. Rather, the South wanted slavery to expand to the Pacific. They wanted New Mexico, Arizona, and even Southern California to allow slavery. In their minds, the Corwin Amendment wasn't enough. So this is sort of correct, right? The Corwin Amendment, or as Daniel Crofts has pointed out, it's the Lincoln Amendment. The Corwin Amendment would have protected slavery in the South, but it, uh, that wasn't the issue. The issue was uh, the territories, right? Because, and why were the territories the issue? Because this was political power. You see, underlying all of this is political power. So, yes, Southerners were interested in the constitutional question of the territories. And Southerners were willing to, ex to uh, compromise on extending, say, the Missouri Compromise Line to the Pacific. They were willing to do it. Jefferson Davis was willing to do it. Look, the Supreme Court has ruled that, you, that no compromises are legal unless we have an amendment, which the, the Crittenden Compromise would have done. It would have amended the Constitution and made the Missouri Compromise part of the Constitution. So they're willing to compromise on this. There was no question about it. But um, the issue was not protection of slavery in the states where it already existed, but in the territories of the United States. So expansion was certainly something that some Southerners were interested in, though a lot of them also recognized that slavery probably wasn't going to be a very profitable institution when you got into New Mexico or Arizona that you needed somewhere else. Now, there were certainly Southerners, as he points out in the piece, that were interested in expanding the institution to South America and Central America, where um, you could have had Confederate states there, places like Cuba or uh, other areas of South America. Um, he cites this, the Arizona Territory joined the Confederacy in March of 1861, but it wasn't until 1862 that the territorial government got around to officially proclaiming it part of the Confederate States of America. One group even wanted to expand slavery throughout the Caribbean. In 1854, a small group of pro-slavery sympathizers formed the Knights of the Golden Circle, a secret society whose goal it was to create a vast new empire of slavery, one that traced a golden circle from the deep south through Mexico, Central America, parts of South America, and the Caribbean. Now, the Knights of the Golden Circle, um, it's often, there was actually northern members if that thing actually existed. There are actually northern members in this, so... Um, it wasn't just a pro-Southern group. Uh, on more than one occasion, a Tennessee-born mercenary named William Walker tried to set up a slave-owner slave republics in Latin America. The idea of extending slavery was not some fanciful discussion over mint juleps. Now, William Walker was acting as a vigilante. He, he wasn't supported by any uh, high-level members of the U.S. government. In fact, he was denounced. Uh, there were a lot of Southerners who were against what he was doing. He was more about interested in his own power than anything else. Um, so, I mean, look, all these things, it's, it's very easy. This is sophomoric to say this was this was conclusive evidence that this was going to happen. He doesn't point out, I mean, you, there are some things that would say, yeah, there were some pretty high-level uh, people in, in the uh, U.S. government that were interested in, say, expanding into Cuba. 
The Austin Manifesto, for example. There are some examples that you could use that would show this, right? But not this stuff. Uh, this is just garbage. For a region that claimed to love states' rights, the South was furious when the North exercised states' rights by forbidding the transit of slaves across their territories. That is, until the Dred Scott decision, which overruled Northern sensibilities. So much for states' rights. Now, this is an interesting attack. Um, and it's you see this when we start talking about nullification. The North nullified the fugitive slave law through personal liberty laws. The question is, was that a constitutional use of nullification? The fugitive slave law is in the Constitution, right? And the Congress can pass legislation to that effect. Essentially, what the North did, though, ultimately, was non-commandeering, which the Supreme Court found to be valid. They just were not going to allow state resources to be used to capture fugitive slaves. But they couldn't block U.S. Marshals. They couldn't block slave owners from coming into their states to try to reacquire slaves. They couldn't do any of that. They just didn't have to uh, use state resources. Now, where the states went a little awry in the North is where they said they're going to arrest these people. Now, they can't do that. But they can, non they can prohibit state resources being used. And that's because the Fugitive Slave Law, again, was in the Constitution. Now, we can say that's immoral, that's egregious today, but in 1860 and 1855 and 1858, it was in the Constitution, right? So, now, that's something that was a legal legal situation in the United States in the antebellum period. States' uh, states' rights was not the underlying cause, in a way. The Civil War was a collision of cultures, free and slave, to paraphrase Lincoln. But there is still much more to it. I'm utterly amazed how much the media downplays the casualties, especially concerning the South. We're told the Civil War was terrible, but just, just not how terrible it really was. Let's do a back-of-the-envelope calculation, a technique made famous by the physicist Enrico Fermi, who demonstrated how much can be gleaned by just simple logic. At the start of the Civil War, there were 9 million people in the South. In the Confederacy, the population was listed in 5.5 million free and 3.5 million slaves. Of that 9 million, only 5.5 million were white. Of those 5.5 million whites, or half or 2.75 million, were male. Of the 2.75 million, roughly half are either too old or too young, leaving roughly only 1.4 million available for the draft. Remember, these were rural, uh, rural people, given large families probably leaning to a lot of youngins. That's not a far-fetched conclusion. Hist historically, fertility does not drop until people are urbanized. Of that 1.4 million, probably 30% or more run fit due to health reasons or from legitimate exemptions. Now, first of all, let me say this, uh, subject to the draft. The draft came, there was a draft in the Confederacy, but the, uh, the enrollment rates for the Confederacy were very high in terms of volunteering. They did need a draft because they needed more men, and they did have a draft. But, but, uh, enrollment was very high in the South because of actual volunteers. We're in the North, and they weren't getting anything out of this. In the North, they were getting a paycheck. So there was, uh, there was that part of it. So in theory, the South could muster, only muster roughly a million men at the maximum. In practice, the South mustered 880,000 men, very close to the absolute maximum it could have. Or other sources list higher numbers. When gender, age, and health are factored in, about one-fifth or one-sixth of any population is all that is available to fight. And the South came close to that theoretical limit. The National Park Service lists the Confederate casualty rate as 94,000 killed in battle, 164,000 diseases, 194,000 wounded in action, 31,000 prisoners of war. Remember that a lot of these wounded were men were seriously maimed for life. Modern reconstructive surgery did not exist in the 19th century. Now reflect that almost half of the theoretical limit were killed, wounded, or died of disease. I mean, yes, that is a huge number. 
right? This is something that Gary Gallagher points out uh, in the the toll of the war was was exceptional in the South. I mean, it was awful. Note also that the recent historiography seems to indicate that the deeper one looks, the higher the numbers become. Add in post-war starvation, disease, etc. My educated guess is that these newer numbers are still low. By, com- by combing through newly digitized census data from the 19th century, J. David Hacker, a demographic historian from Birmingham, uh, Birmingham University in New York, has recalculated the death toll and increased it by more than 20% to 750,000. It helps you understand, particularly in the South, with a much smaller population, what a devastating experience that was, this was. This is from the New York Times 2012, when you could, New York Times could still say things that seem horrific about the war and that the South didn't just deserve it. There were, there were the men who, these were the men who carry on a culture, a civilization. The old rep, uh, rarely reproduce, while those under 14 are not yet fully educated in the civilization they're going to carry on. Those who are sick may reproduce, but often they do not, certainly less so in the pre-antibiotic not, antibiotic 19th century. So the 880,000 or higher who went to fight under the stars and bars were close to being all that was available to carry on Southern culture. And roughly one-third, quite possibly more, did not come back fit enough or not come back at all. Essentially, an intermediate generation came close to being wiped out. Had the Southern casualties been just a slight bit worse, any Southern cultural distinctiveness, and I'm not even considering race relations, would have been lost. Of course, because, you know, there was no racism in the North. I mean, that, that phrase, I'm not even considering race relations, because somehow Northerners had different race relations, which they didn't. Children, especially the sons, learn from their fathers, and if one-third to one-half of them do not make it home in good condition, who transmits the culture? The women? Well, maybe to the daughters, but who instructs the sons? Now, let's stop there for a second. Women did transmit the culture to their sons. These were people, people learned at the knee of their mothers. Mothers had a great role in, in passing on civilization, which is why the left goes bananas over the UDC, because the UDC was writing the history textbooks that they hate after the war, right? So the women did have a role in this. He seems to, again, the, the, the person writing this doesn't really know much about what they're talking about. This is just, this is just a, a, a mental exercise for them and, uh, you know, putting down on paper some of their fragmented thoughts. It would have been Northern troops and or Northern men who migrated down South to fill the gaps. Uh, so things like this are precisely how nations are seriously changed. Devastation of such magnitude eventually forced the Highland Scots and the Irish to lose their Gaelic tongue. That's why the Welsh now speak English for the most part. Had the South fought on just for a few more months against incredible odds, with the North getting ever stronger as the South got weaker, the casualties would have approached genocidal levels. Now, there is actually a lecture from the Abbeville Institute by Tom Fleming about the Southern genocide, and he, he says that this was a genocide. It was a complete genocide in the South. And Eugene Genovese has said it's essentially a genocide. Uh, so he, the, the writer says, genocide not necessarily in the sense of population destruction, but in the same sense of cultural destruction, which is an accepted definition. It was a cultural genocide. It was, right? So uh, this is not a far-fetched thing to say. This, this is the only part of the entire essay where you can say, well, he's saying something that the establishment may not like. But it is. But he, he comes back and he wraps back around and says, but I'm not defending the Confederacy. And this is not something that's good, uh, that they are still promoting this idea of the lost cause. But you can understand. I mean, it's amazing they still have people around to do this. He says, now I'm not a fan of the Confederacy. And some of the apologists for the lost cause drive me nuts with their easily refutable defense of secession. 
not really easily refutable. It's, uh, it's just, I mean, if you're talking about the legal defense, I mean, what you what are you talking about here? If it's the legal part of it, it's not easily refutable at all. However, as one examines the Civil War and the Reconstruction, I'm amazed that the South, as a distinct American subculture, survived at all. I'm amazed that a more thorough population replacement did not occur. Credit has been given to Southern women for hanging tough on that. Lesser females would have collapsed under the strain. This, more than anything else, more than racism, though racism does exist in the South, as elsewhere, explains why it will be impossible to wring neo-Confederate sympathies out of many Southerners. So it's, it's not because of racism that these people hang on to neo-Confederate symbols. It's because there was not enough genocide in the South, essentially. They, and the North didn't wipe them out enough. And so, I mean, this is, this is exactly what the left thinks. We needed to wipe them out. They needed to be gone. So we didn't do a good enough job in doing this. And so that's why these neo-Confederates hang on in the South and they still have monuments and flags and all these things because we didn't do enough to get rid of this stuff in the post-war period. We didn't do enough to revolutionize the United States. It's very Eric Foner-esque in this particular statement. It explains why so many respect Confederate monuments and were opposed to the dismantling. Consider the King Arthur legends, which bemoan the Anglo-Saxon conquest of Celtic Britain 1,600 years ago hoping for a future Celtic king to return. The historic figure of Arthur as a victorious 5th century warrior leading Celtic Britons into battle against Saxon invaders. It's why Scotland erected monuments to William Wallace centuries after England had won the contest. Finally, consider how many of these Southerners were, are descended from these Scots and Welsh, and one may anticipate the legends of Confederate heroes will linger on long after our woke leadership has gone back to sleep, should the Lord tarry. Again, I am not a fan of the Confederacy, but I can understand why it holds such an appeal to so many. The last part of this is just kind of garbage. Um, but some of the things here, he's not necessarily too far off off uh, you know, subject. And he just doesn't understand all of the things working into this. But you can find all kinds of people that said all kinds of things at all kinds of times. And does one person saying something about something mean that's the definitive reason why something happens? Um, we know that Lincoln saying we're going to war to preserve the Union is a pretty important indication of what the war is really about. Secession is to prevent secession. Now, we can talk about secession and the war as two different things, but I will say that some of the things he gets into at the end with cultural genocide, etc., um, this is something that did actually happen. And um, the reason that it wasn't complete is because Southerners did resist. Women resisted, and the men that were left resisted too. And there was a lot of discussion about this in the 1880s and 1890s. So this piece is um, it's sad in several parts of it, correct in a couple of other parts, but it's, in, it's uh, really a nice example of where the mainstream thinks in American society on the war and secession and other things. So there's my comments on it. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.